A reading from John 17. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. The word of the Lord. Maybe seated. Thank you, Megan. On Friday night here, we had a Friday night seminar on uh, just exploring biblical um, paradigm on racial identity and how that's talked about in our culture and in the church. And it was a good time. Gus Pritchard, Gus Pritchard from Castleview Church came. It was very helpful. But on Thursday afternoon, I was talking to Gus on the phone, just kind of like, hey, how, how do you want the Q&A to go? And I was doing that while I was in Costco shopping for the snacks for the for the night, and so, and for some other things for the church. So, uh, you know, I don't know if you've been to Costco. It's quite large. They have, everything's big. And so I had the big cart, and I had four cartons of water bottles. So, like, it's stacked up high. It had some uh, Keurig coffee cups and other bi- big things of granola bars, and just big boxes everywhere. Big. It's, like, overflowing. And uh, Gus called me, and I t- took the call, and I, I, I think I walked about five feet in front of the cart, and had a seven-minute phone call with him. That's it. Just talking. Okay, okay, okay. Right, that sounds good. That sounds good. I turn around, and my cart is gone. There's nowhere to be found. I'm like, maybe somebody grabbed my cart. And so I was walking up and down the aisles, and uh, just gone. I mean, I just, for five, I was five steps away for seven minutes. I ducked my head, looked at something, turned around. Everything had changed. Very disorienting. I'm like, where's my cart? And finally found it, and a Costco employee was putting the last item back. I'm like, like, why did you take it? Well, we thought it was an abandoned cart. I said, I was just taking a phone call. And he's, here's what he said. Were you the guy, like, just in front of the cart? I'm like, yes, I was just the guy in front of the cart. Um, okay. It's very disorienting. I didn't think that. I just, I just turned aside for one second, turned back. Everything's different. Uh, it strikes me that uh, we do live in a time in our culture where this is happening all the time. We look down. We... Uh, we just maybe get involved in a job or have a kid or have a couple kids and look up and like, everything's changed in our culture. Things happen very quickly. Uh, with the, the, the speed of change has often been noted is increasing because of digital connectivity and, and whatever. Uh, and just the differences of being born in the early 70s or the early aughts or now the early, early 2010s is radically different. The world you inhabit if you're 20 is radically different than the world a 50-year-old inhabits. Things have changed. Technology has changed. Uh, values of, across the board have changed. Uh, understanding of family, understanding of marriage has changed. All these things have changed. Uh, the hospitality toward the church, toward the gospel have changed. Some cultural commentators say we've moved into what's called a negative world now, from a neutral world. That The average disposition is certainly in the media toward the church and the gospel is different. It's actually negative now, not just neutral. I don't know if that's right, but those are possibilities because things are changing so fast. And in the midst of all that changing, it can seem disorienting for the people of God. And the temptation is twofold. It is either to sort of huddle away and hunker down in isolation or simply to be washed away with the change 
Jesus here and what Megan read is pointing us to a different way. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He's praying for his disciples. And then at the last verse, you and me, those who would believe in him through their words, that we be actually kept right where we are. And in the midst of a chaos, chaotic and crazy world to be stable. One metaphor, one picture the scripture gives to us for this as a lens through which to see our life is the metaphor of exile. Exile. That is, we are a people who are not in our home country. That we are waiting for our home to come to us, but in the gospel, in Christ, in some way, we've already come home. We are home in Jesus, though right now we are not home, so we want to be a faithful presence as we wait for our home to come to us. Uh, so we're taking the first few weeks of 2024 to step back and consider the concept of exile, what it looks like to be at home in exile or live at a home away from home. Part of the reason we're doing this also is 2024 is an election year, and every four years, Americans get a little bit crazy and very angsty. And we just, before that happens, we want to step back and say, let's remember our calling as a people who are really a people of the future, that has a future has invaded the present in Jesus, uh, who are to be salt and light, to be present, but not assimilated, who are to be distinct, but not isolated. So uh, one of the places we're doing that, we'll, we'll do that from, is the book of Daniel. And I know that you can read, but on the front of your insert there, this um, um, couple paragraph description of where we're going for the next seven weeks. One image the scripture uses to interpret our current place in the world is that of exile. Since Genesis 3 and mankind's treasonous rebellion against God, the entire world is in exile and separated from their created home which is the presence of God. In the midst of this exile, Christians find themselves having begun their journey home in Jesus. United to Christ, Christians are presently secure in the world that is to come, even as they live in a world that is passing away. In Jesus, we are at home in exile. In this overlapping reality of being, quote, in the world and in Christ, we experience pressures to both isolation from the world and assimilation to the world. However, Jesus calls us to a faithful presence in the world. He empowers us to live as distinct people in the midst of the world that desperately needs to find their true home in him. Further, he marks us out as a people who intentionally live under him as a reigning king in the middle of a world drunk on power of empire or and autonomy. All this requires careful clarity and courageous devotion, both of which God furnishes to his people. The book of Daniel is historic uh, exilic, or it's a type of literature called exilic literature that captures these dynamics well and displays God's nourishing power and wise ways for his people. So we're going to look back in the Old Testament at the book of Daniel at a time when God's people were in exile from their homeland to explore his ways and dynamics of being in exile in light of already being in Christ. So kind of a back and forth. This is the book of Daniel for the next seven weeks. I realize a challenge like the book of Daniel is often like children's cartoons. You've seen it. 
or Veggie Tales with Rack Shack and Benny, if you watch the Daniel cartoon. And so uh, we can kind of become inoculated to what's there. So I want to encourage us to ask the, whole, the Lord to help us see f- with fresh eyes the book of Daniel, to give us some instruction what it looks like for us to live in 2024 right where we are, to be a faithful blessing to our culture as a distinct people of God. Okay? So uh, what we're getting at today is what we see in Daniel 1 is that in exile, which is where we are, in some real way, still. God nourishes his people through a distinct identity that creates a clear calling. God nourishes you and me through a distinct identity that forms a clear calling in your life and in our world in 2024. So just read a little bit, make a couple comments, and move on here. Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. First movement here we see is that exile, be that during that time or now, is under the sovereign control of God. What this invites us to see right out of the gate. It's under the sovereign control of God, even as a distinct covenant people. There's a vision impairment called presbyopia. It has nothing to do with being a Presbyterian. Uh, There's other impairments with being Presbyterian, but... um, uh, if you, oh, I'm a Presby, we're Presbyterian church. So, uh, presbyopia means it's hard to focus on things that are up close, especially when they come up close. And one of the uh, treatments of that is what monovision correction, when one lens of the glasses or one contact lens is adjusted for reading and one lens is adjusted for distance. And those two lenses together, somehow your brain. Uh, works all that together so that you can focus on things when they come close. Two lenses, one for close up, one for distance. Right out of the gate, Daniel 1 invites us to look through two lenses of what's going on. First, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. That's the close up lens. 605 BC, this invasion. That's the first of several invasions, but that's the big one. That's lens number one. That's the close-up reality. If you're in Babel or in Jerusalem, that's all you're seeing. Our, our city's being besieged. We're being overrun. Everything's going to end. It's right here. But there's another lens. Verse two. It turns out nobody actually took Jerusalem. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. 
And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Two lenses. Which one do you look at? Both. That's what scripture does. Even this exile here, or our time in exile now, is under the sovereign control of God. We don't know how that works necessarily. Providence is a lot easier read and understood after the fact. We don't know. Uh, a lot smarter, many women than my, uh, me or anybody here have written lots and lots on that. And still at the end, they'll, they'll say, it's a mystery. Just like we said in Psalm 139 at our call to worship, even when it's dark to me, darkness is light to you, Lord. Complete pitch dark. I don't understand. And God's like, that's not dark to me at all. I'm doing something here. So no matter how hard things are for these guys or for us, they're hard, or how much others are actually evil and destructive, which Babylon was, God is not unaware, distant, or powerless. In spite of others actually sinning, and Nebuchadnezzar's a sinful person. He's destroyer of peoples. Somehow it's dark to us, but God is working in that. He's a sovereign God. Also, what we have to see here is this is a sign of God's faithfulness. Handing Jehoiakim over to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Sometimes we look at things like this and say, how could God allow that to happen? Well, here's the answer. He said it would happen. <laughs> He's just allowing what to happen. is What he said was going to happen. When he brought Israel into the promised land. If you remember, we looked at this a couple years ago. He was very clear to say, I'm not giving you this land because you're great. In fact, you're not that great. However, the people here, the Canaanites, are terrible. They're terrible people, right? They, they forfeited their claim on the land because they worshiped false gods. They sacrificed their own children. They engaged in all kinds of sexual perversion. And they acted unjustly across the board. Because of that, they forfeit this land. But here's the thing, Israel. If you go into land and adopt the way of the Canaanites, you will forfeit the land. Because this land, if you remember in the Bible, is supposed to be a foreshadowing of the real promised land, heaven that comes and restores everything, that is a world of worship, that is a world of faithfulness, love, and justice. So if you go into the land and act like the Canaanites, you will forfeit the land as well. They go in the land, and guess what they do? They act like the Canaanites, right? Eventually, they worship false gods. They sacrifice their own children, even in the temple sometimes, they engage in all kinds of sexual perversion and act unjustly. And God simply does what he said he was going to do. I'm going to give you their land away to another. Now, most of the time, I know we think of God's faithfulness as something like a little more positive, giving the good things that he promised he would give. But we need to have a God who's trustworthy. And if we can't see him being faithful in the warnings, how do we believe him when he says stuff like, I will never leave you nor forsake you? It's just like if a parent, if you're a parent and you give, say, kids, this is going to be the consequence if you do this, and they do that, and you're like, ah, just kidding, it's not the consequence. Eventually, they're not going to trust you. Now, where God is sovereignly wise, as parents, we're always renegotiating the consequences because sometimes we're not wise. Like, you know what? That was a bad consequence, but I have to give it anyway because I said it. Sorry, kids. But, um, but if you keep not giving the consequences, you are not teaching the kids to trust you. You're teaching them not to trust you, right? So God's trustworthy in the warnings and in the promises. But I don't want us to miss that this is an incredibly challenging situation. It's overwhelming. Sometimes we miss this if we're reading the kids' books. This is 
an immersive and subversive reality, like all totalitarian regimes, whether that be a hard totalitarian or soft totalitarian, it's overwhelming. Babylon is brutal, but they are savvy. And they have a long-term strategy. They need people from the lands they're conquering to buy into what they're doing. So what they do is they take kind of the youngest, the young, best, and brightest. Daniel and his three friends are somewhere between ages 14 and 17 or 18 here. They take people from the royal homes or nobility, well-known people who are smart, have a lot of competence, have a lot of upside, who are good-looking. Today, we would say they took the influencers. That's really what they're doing. And their bet is that if we can get these guys to buy in to our ways of empire, it will just move on to the next generation. And they've got all the time in the world because they have all the power in the world. So they take the long view. So they take Daniel and his three friends and we have to know this is like not day school. They're not like at home and mom packs a lunchbox and they go off and have school for eight hours a day. They're kidnapped. They're stolen. This is enslavement, okay? This is man stealing. They're taken from their home and they're taken 500, about 500 miles from Jerusalem to Babylon by camel uh, caravan. That's about a month of travel. They're taken a month away from their home. They're stolen. They're brought to a palace and put in an immersion school. Right there, they, it's all Babylon all the time. I took Spanish in high school, which is like one hour Spanish a day. How much Spanish do you learn doing that? I didn't learn any Spanish doing that. I learned enough to be a Span- go, and had to become a Spanish minor in college and still didn't learn any Spanish because only a few hours a day. You got to go to the place, right? If you're most people. This is all Babylon all the time. In fact, in the first three verses, there's three different synonyms. It's just a nerd thing. But Babylon, Shinar, and, Chal- and the Chaldeans all means the same thing. Everywhere you look, every, every, it's all Babylon, Babylon, Babylon. It's immersive reality. Everything they saw and heard and thought about was Babylon. And even every, what they smelled and tasted. Odd, like there is such brutality. They're being enslaved. They're being captured. They don't have a choice. And the king says, why don't you eat from my table? I'm gonna give you the best food and the best wine. It's luxurious food and wine against the backdrop of this brutality. It's kind of psychological warfare, actually. It's kind of like the abusive husband who gives really good gifts for anniversary. It's confusing, whoa. It's very confusing. The captors are being kind for their own purposes. It's manipulation. And this is three years of 24-7 immersion into this situation. So one other thing I will say that it is possible, some theologians would say probable, this definitely doesn't make the kids cartoon, that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were made eunuchs. And that's not fashionable, but it is possible. Their, their master was the leader of the eunuchs, a lot of times because they oversaw harems in order to remove possibility, they would just remove their testicles, right? VeggieTales isn't going after that one, but it's a possibility. I don't know, the, the scripture doesn't say, but like it's, it's a possibility. All I want to say is like, it is this is not a vacation for these kids. 
It's hard. And then they changed their names. It's totally brazen. The youth didn't do that. Their master did it. And all their names had theological meaning in their native tongue, Hebrew. And they were changed to be given theological meaning in the Babylonian matrix of the gods. Daniel means God is my judge. His name was changed to Belteshazzar, which meant God, Bel, protect the king. Bel was one of their gods. God, protect the king. Bel, protect the king. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. His name's changed to Shadrach, which means I'm under command of Aku, the moon god. Mishael, his name means who is like the Lord or who is like God. His name was changed to Meshach, which meant who is like Aku. Azariah means Yahweh is my helper. Yahweh is my help. His name was changed to Abednego, which meant I am a helper of Nebo. I'm a servant of Nebo, the god Nebo. So this means they were forced to publicly identify themselves, not with the story of being the distinct covenant people of God, but with the wider culture that demanded their loyalty every time their name was spoken. It's a immersive reality, highly subversive. They were isolated. They were treated terribly and good. Everything was the Babylonian culture. Their names were changed, everything. So you're a 16-year-old. You're taken away. Your parents might have been killed, probably likely were killed. All your old friends are gone to the four winds of the empire, never to return. Your country's been overrun. There's no chance of comeback. Everywhere you look is more powerful than you. Everything is gone. The easiest thing in the world is just give in. Just go with it, man. There's no option of not going with this. They're forced to ask, as we are forced to ask in exile, in every exilic situation, who will I be in this situation? What story will I actually live in? And as I said, the two dangers in exile are one, isolation, if at all possible, like living apart in a sort of a a holy huddle, so to speak, away and privatized, or just assimilation. It's just too hard and we'll just go with the the movement of what other other power that be is, assimilation into the culture. In Daniel 1, we see neither one of those. We see here the exile sometimes requires a resolute no, N-O, as a distinct covenant people. Sometimes we simply must say no. Verse eight, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Uh, When I was praying through this this morning, after thinking about the sermon this week, I think I woke up with this idea that there's one phrase that I want us to hold on to from this whole chapter. I don't know why the phrase requires a 35-minute sermon, but it's one phrase. Uh, three, Three words. And it is chapter one, verse eight. But 
Daniel resolved. But Daniel resolved. That means he set his heart in a particular direction. He resolved. They were learning this pagan, non-Jewish way of life, and he makes this resolution, I'm not going to eat the meat or the wine that comes from the king because it will defile me in some way. Now, why does he make this decision? Good question. Actually, no, nobody really knows. <laughs> There's a lot of ink spilt about this. Uh, he understands somehow this would have defiled him. Now, now, there were Jewish dietary laws, but in a foreign land, all the food is unclean, not just the meat and the wine. And the prophets actually anticipate this. So it wasn't an issue of breaking an explicit command of Scripture. That will come up in, later when they're uh, required to bow to an idol. And they're like, sorry, no, not going to do that. This is something else. Probably the best thinking on this, where I kind of land with the help of Tim Keller, to be honest with you, uh, is that this, okay, so the king's table is part of the psychological manipulation of this whole process. The kindness of their captors, right? It was the one thing that would make them forget they were in exile. Like, oh, you know what? Maybe these guys aren't so bad. Maybe the situation isn't so bad. Maybe this is okay. It's not okay. And the food, the meat and the wine that the, from the king's table was that thing that would lead their heart away from their actual identity to saying, well, maybe I just am Babylonian now. It would forget who they were. Also, this eating this from the king's table in their mind likely symbolized a solidarity with or submission to or a loyalty to the king that was reserved for God alone. And eating it would have either meant declaring that loyalty or they knew it would draw their heart away from their actual identity as people of God. So Daniel and his friends are learning the culture's ways. That's fine. That's what we're called to do as God's people. Learn the ways of the culture around you. But for some reason, eating the food meant moving from learning the ways of Babylon to adopting them in their heart. And they refused. They refused. So essentially they said, I'll learn the lyrics of the song, but I'm not going to dance to the music. Not doing both. So for some reason, it's a boundary they resolved not to cross. And so he goes to the chief official and says, hey, I'd like not to eat the meat and the wine. And it says God gave him favor and compassion. What that means is the chief official didn't say, off with your head. That's all it means. Because we know it. the chief official said, no, you don't get to, Sorry. If you don't do this and you look worse because you're not eating the meat and drinking the wine, it, my head is on the, you know, my head is on the chopping block. So no, you don't get to do this. Uh, so because the chief official said no, Daniel said, okay, that's fine. We won't eat. No, that's not what he did. Look what he does. Verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward who the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over, okay, first of all, that's the, the next guy down. The boss said no. He's like, hey, you, come here. You're overseeing the food. So 
He said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So why does he, why are they so committed to doing this? Well, remember, the power of empire gives them new names. The absolute power of the land declared, this will be your name. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. This it shall be. It shall always be. That's the way it is. Notice verse 11. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The power of empire says, you will be called by these names. And Daniel just keeps going right on calling them by their Jewish names their names of their covenant identity in the midst of this place that's making demands on them. As if to say, we are not owned by you, Nebuchadnezzar. We're not owned by you, Babylon. We will not define ourselves in light of the powers that be or the wisdom of this age. We might say now we are not owned by you, Western culture. We are not owned by you, the American political system who thinks the next selection of whatever is the most important thing in the world, it is not. We are not owned by any modern idols of personal fulfillment, of comfort, approval, security. We are not owned by you. We have a different identity. Now look at the way he does it. Though There's a lot of wisdom here. They solve this at the simplest, most humble way possible. Doesn't make a big deal of it. The, the, the big boss says no. He just goes to the little boss. Says, hey, how about this? Let's do a test. Let's do a test. We'll eat vegetables for 10 days. Now, there was a book written maybe 15 years ago called The Daniel Diet about eating vegetables. About, that's not what this is about. I don't know. People can write books about anything. It means nothing, right? It was all about vegetarianism, which is fine. I'm not saying anything against being a vegan. Uh, we were, I was vegetarian for... 18 of the last 24 months of my life. Made no difference whatsoever, right? It's fine. Uh, I didn't look fatter. Well, maybe I did. But I didn't look skinnier. I didn't look better. It just is a thing, right? Um, it's not talking about, it's not the point. The point is they resolved that they would not do this. And they solved it the, the easiest level possible. And notice the attitude at the point of this passage the whole point is like we are going to be resolutely faithful to God. In this place in time, Babylon 605 BC, America 2024 AD, we're going to be resolutely faithful to God. And, okay, I'm not going to give a prescription here because that would be legalism, but this does mean more than not sinning. It means that some issues of wisdom, are, we're going to have to abide by right here and right now. That might be different for different people. There are different things that will lead your heart away from the Lord and to be immersed in our culture than for me and for somebody else. But we have to know what those are and we have to be resolved to say, no, I am actually going to be defined by my covenant identity in this time and place. I must know what they are though. And I will be resolved. 
And also I will be resolved to obey what is clearly stated. Whatever is going to lead us to not be immersed in the kingdom of God. Right? We're going to be polite. Yes. We're going to offer creative solutions. We're not going to give ultimatums. We're not going to be unnecessarily offensive. But we are not bending on our resolve. You can criticize us, mock us, threaten us, kill us, but the one thing you cannot do as those with a distinct covenant identity in the Lord is change us in the midst of a culture. Now, the thing is, it was easier to see in Babylon. It's harder to see in America in 2024 because it feels kind of homey. We'll go, as the series goes on, we'll talk about idols of power and empire, which will make it feel a little less homey, I hope. And why couldn't they change us? Because we are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We have a covenant identity. They're resolved to this distinct identity. I love this attitude because there's a little bit of rebellion built in. And there is a holy rebellion that God builds into his people. Uh, some apologists would call it rebellion against the rebellion. The world's in rebellion against God. Well, you rebel against that. Uh, if you've had little kids, there's undoubtedly for almost every kid, you're teaching them to eat with the high chair and the tray and they'll knock some food on the floor and you'd be like, okay, don't drop your food on the floor. And the kid will be some, eventually this. It's wild. I mean, almost every kid does it. And you're like, Nobody taught them that. This is a picture of original sin right here. Like they just, they're natural, they do it, right? That's right. They learned it from their parents. Um, it's passed on to them by their parents, by Adam and Eve. Like there's a rebellion, it's like, I'm gonna drop it. That's, the, that's actually what's being invited right here. Power of Empire says you will identify yourself by all the values of this culture and what we declare is your identity and you will hold on to that. And as God's people say, no, actually not. We have an identity. We're already marked by something profoundly, eternally, permanently, and beautifully. And for us, it, it was good for Daniel. Like for us, it's so much more rich. Daniel says, I'm holding on to something. In spite of being an exile, I can barely see. It's all dark, but I'm holding on to this. In the gospel, of course, we see first somebody's holding on to us. We, can't talk, we can talk about resolve. Resolve is good, but it's, our resolve isn't first. There's one who is resolved for us. Luke 9, 51, this time where the, Luke, the middle of Luke where it changes and Jesus, it says, uh, the NIV translates it, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, which before that's the crucifixion, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He resolved himself for his people. And then in the garden, he's praying, thinking about this cup of wrath that he is to drink down. He said, Father, if there be any, any other way, let this pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. He is resolved to doing the will of God for you and for me. First, there's one resolved for us. And as a result of his resolution, his death, and his resurrection in our place, we get a new covenant identity. It's not just the people of God. It's that, but it's so much more. It is, we get to be called actually and really sons and daughters of God. Sons and daughters of God. We used to teach our kids when they're growing up like, hey, don't do that, you're a Williams. 
And we, at the time, but like, that was something special to them, right? But, um, like, which like, your identity directs who you are. And I just want to say, you know what I'm looking at? I'm looking at sons and daughters of God. And we're at work on a Tuesday afternoon. You know who you are? You're a son and daughter of the high king of the universe. That's who you are. Where you, when you're in your home, uh, when you're asleep, this is who we are distinctly. And the call is to resolutely hold on to that, knowing the one is resolutely holding on to us first. And we will fail in our resolve. And when we fail, we will fall on the one who is resolved to holding on to us, who is resolved for us. So personal resolve is, is real. It's not enough, but there is a grace-empowered resolve that God uses mightily in our lives and in the lives of his people. A resolve to actually be his people in the middle of a world of chaos. Do, so the question to you is like, do you know what is eating at the king's table for you? What is it that draws your heart away, even ever so subtly at first, from faithfulness to the Lord in our culture, in our time and place? How can we figure this out? Well, we have means to think God's thoughts after him. And that is, in a place where it's not clear, we think God's thoughts after him to figure that out by thinking his thoughts after him where it is clear. Over time, as we have our mind and heart shaped by the revealed words of God to us, his thoughts, we, we, we pattern our life by this word of God through the means he gives of word, prayer, worship, and community, we then wisely are able to think his thoughts after him where it's not revealed. So this is a little, there's some trial and error in this. I get that. I get that. We sang a song, the, the song that Jason led us in. Uh, there's a typo in the chorus. Saved my soul. Uh, you probably noticed that. You know whose typo fault that was? That's mine. I, it wasn't Jason's fault. It wasn't Rebecca's fault. It was my fault, right? So next time we'll fix it and it'll be different. Sometimes just learning what is eating at the king's table is some trial and error. Sometimes we have to fix it. But here's what we have to do. We have to be resolved. Because we live in a world that wants to, it is immersive and subversive, just in nicer ways than Babylon, praise God. But it still wants us to be moved away ever so slightly from Jesus and find our real hope in this person or this party or this idea or finally the approval of this person or group of people. Uh, and resolve is not necessarily comfortable. God had to act in a certain way for this story to go on. It could have been after 10 days, looked all skinny and gaunt, and he's like, no, no, I'm out. We're not doing this. And, uh, or the official could have said, you have to eat. And they said, we're not going to eat. And they offered their heads. Daniel's a much shorter book. One chapter. One, one chapter sermon series. It's all good. Uh, that is a different story, <laughs> but not a worse story. The point's not the success of this, but the faithfulness of these folks, and before that, the faithfulness of God to them. This resolve requires us actually to trust God. And so if I can just speak for a second to those who are a little bit younger among us, those who are in this room that are under the age of college, college and under, this Daniel age group right here, now is the time to be resolved in our life. It will bear fruit. 
70 years later, Daniel is still in the service of the king. It is tied to chapter one. 70 years later. 2,600 years later, we are talking about it still. Simple resolve of a 15-year-old. Think of the encouragement that's been down through the ages for other 15-year-olds or 50-year-olds. Now is the time, guys, to determine that, you know, I don't, I don't want to eat at the table of this world. You may need help with that. We all need help figuring that out. I promise you that if you resolve now, you will be thankful later. I promise you. As several who are older can say, I wish I had made a different kind of resolve when I was 10, 12, 25, whatever. God uses that. Now, it's not our strength and our, it's, it's, a, it's a resolve built on his, but it is a true set of our sale. A true set of our sale. Every, I think almost every revival in history has been led by people who are a little bit older, but it took root among those who are like 18 years old. When once this resolve is in place, and maybe only when this resolve is in place, we can be a faithful presence. Uh, we realize that the, whatever culture we live in is not ultimate. Because Daniel and his guys were saying, look, I'm, we're just not going to bend. There's nothing here that's, that's bigger than my God. So that means anything we're learning about is not bigger than our God. Nothing in our culture is ultimate. It's not an ultimate threat. It's not ultimate wisdom. It, the Lord is ultimate. That allows us to learn everything and actually assess it really well. Uh, and it means an engaging yes often as a distinct covenant people. So look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them was none found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all the kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus, like seven decades later. They learned the stuff, even all the pagan stuff. A lot of what they were learning would be like astrology. Something that's just straight up pagan religion. You know who the, you know who the best pagan theologians were in the Babylonian Empire? Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They didn't believe any of it. They're like, well, this is what your people teach. We know it better than everybody. Oh, it's not true, of course, but we know it. They, they knew the stuff. They were useful to the king. They excelled. And we'll see that God uses this to bless them, to bless their people, to bless other, uh, other unbelievers, even bless the king. So they were, it's as an encouragement to Christians, do good work. Wow. If we can, I mean, we're not all super smart, but like if we can, we should study hard and, and do good. We should do good in school. We should do good work. We should be experts in our field, if at all possible, for the sake of blessing other people as a distinct covenant people of God. We work hard. We do our best work. And when we're called to compromise, we say, oh, no, that's not what we do. But here's a threat. If there's a threat, we say, that's fine. You can do what you want. We're not bending, but we will be the best we possibly can be. This is what it's called to be a faithful presence in the world.
As we will see, you take the king, you put him in the 21st century, shake it up and pour it out, and it's the culture. That's the real authority for us. So we are called to be distinct but not isolated, learned but not assimilated, and we are called to learn what it is for us to, you know, what the temptation is to eat at the king's table for us in our own heart. And we resolve to not eat at that table because in truth, guys, we already eat at the king's table. That's why we come to the communion table every single week. We have one who is radically resolved for us and absolutely committed to being with us and to walking through the murkiness of figuring out resolution in our own life together as his people in exile, but at home in him. If you're in Christ, I want to invite you to this table. I'll pray, invite you to come.